0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: This is Cleve Hudson with The Washington
2: Post. It's
0: Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martini Powers. It's Tuesday, January 7th. Today, what's next in the impeachment trial, the tenuous state of U.S. Iraq relations, and a new crop of questions about the Selective Service?
2: We're sort of in a state of suspended animation, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. I'm Mike DeBonis. I cover Congress for The Washington Post. So it's not quite noon on uh, Tuesday, January 7th. It's been nearly three weeks since the House voted to impeach President Trump on two articles, one for abuse of power for his machinations in, in dealing with The United States aid to Ukraine and obstruction of Congress. But what we don't have is a action by the House actually transmitting those articles to the Senate and appointing the managers or prosecutors whose job it will be to make the case to the Senate. And we're waiting to see how that is going to get resolved.
0: So tell me more about that, because I think that for Average people, and I include myself in this, it is very confusing why Speaker Pelosi hasn't even sent the articles of impeachment to the Senate yet.
2: Well, it goes back to what happened in the House and the fact that there was no cooperation from the Trump administration uh, in their investigation. That meant that there were certain witnesses that the House never heard from, including White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, and a couple of other sort of mid-level White House officials who decided not to cooperate with the House subpoenas. Democrats believe that they have relevant testimony that they can implicate the president in the wrongdoing he was impeached for in the House. Senators, Senate Democrats want to do everything they can to try and get these people to be subpoenaed in the Senate for this trial. Basically, they're trying to use the this uh, sort of withholding of the articles to try and force some sort of agreement to get these people on the record.
0: And what do Republicans in the Senate say about their reasoning for why they wouldn't let these people testify in a Senate trial?
2: There's a number of things we're hearing right now. They're mostly procedural and process arguments. What Mitch McConnell's position is, is that this should follow the precedent, the most recent precedent, which is the 1999 impeachment trial of Bill Clinton.
3: The Senate has a unanimous bipartisan precedent for when to handle mid-trial questions such as witnesses in the middle of the trial was when that was done the last time. And that's the way it should be done this
2: time. In that trial, uh, there was no agreement on witnesses at the outset of the trial. Instead, the House came and presented its case. President Clinton d- presented his defense. And at that point, there was a vote on whether to conduct depositions of particular witnesses. Mitch McConnell says that
3: that was good enough for President Clinton.
2: Work for Bill Clinton.
3: So it ought to be good enough for President Trump fair is fair.
2: The same thing should happen here. The House should present its case. The president should present his defense. And then the senators should decide on whether or not they want to hear from additional witnesses.
4: Will we conduct a fair trial that examines all the facts or not? The country just saw Senator McConnell's answer to that question. His answer is no.
2: To Democrats, that's not a good deal, because they believe that this is a ruse that Mitch McConnell is simply going to, at the end of that initial process, move to summarily dismiss the case and and acquit the president.
4: The Republican leader prefers finger pointing and name calling to avoid answering the looming question, why shouldn't the Senate call witnesses?
2: So they are pushing to get some sort of agreement on the front end to get this testimony before Uh, the trial even begins.
0: But what I don't understand is up until now, there has been a lot of urgency in the impeachment process from Democrats. We saw that play out during the impeachment inquiry in the House, that things were moving along really quickly. And the fact that now things have sort of stalled, doesn't that bolster Republicans' case that there actually isn't any urgency in this process and that Democrats are doing this for show, not because they actually want to get this impeachment done?
2: I think you're right. I think, you know, for months, Democrats said this was a matter of the, the the gravest constitutional urgency that, you know, this is a president who's abused his power and should be impeached and potentially removed from office. And they, you know, they made that case continually through the fall that this is, you know, we can't wait. We can't wait for the courts to get these witnesses. We need to press forward at all junctures. And now they've gotten to a point where, they've reversed themselves. And that's something that Mitch McConnell pointed out on the floor today. It's something that Republicans have been repeating for the past couple of weeks as this has played out, which is Democrats are stepping on their own message here.
0: And then there's this new wrinkle in what's going on with the fact that John Bolton came out on Monday saying that he would, in fact, be willing to testify in a Senate trial if he is subpoenaed.
2: Why is that important? Well, it's important because John Bolton probably has some of the most potentially game-changing testimony that's left to be heard at this point. I mean, he was involved in, in direct discussions with uh, President Trump on the subject of aid to Ukraine. He knows more than most, more than just about anybody involved in this, about what the president's actual motivations may have been and, and what he did and why he did it to have him now dangling the possibility that he has something potentially explosive to say it has you know really cast a, a new light on this trial i mean you know there is a real possibility that there could be something that actually changes the course of this now the question is is There are going to be some sort of arrangement where John Bolton is actually going to say what he knows. And for him to sort of send that message yesterday kind of led some people to believe that it's going to be very hard for Senate Republicans to avoid having him share his testimony in some manner, whether that's some sort of public interrogation, whether that's a private deposition, uh, remains to be seen. But it, it puts immense political pressure on Republicans to think that there is this potentially very weighty testimony out there and that they're going to proceed with a trial without hearing it. If this comes out, and we all know that John Bolton has a book coming that you know, potentially could weigh all this out in great detail, It's going to be very hard for Republican senators to defend, particularly the ones who are running for reelection this year in 2020, why they didn't want to hear that before they took a vote on the president's removal, not wait till afterwards when it was a moot point.
0: And now that John Bolton has said this, are there any Republicans that seem like they're leaning more towards wanting to actually hear that testimony that they're kind of caving under that pressure?
2: So there's two sort of distinct questions here, and. On the first question, are there Republican senators who want to hear from John Bolton? The the answer is yes. Mitt Romney said yesterday that he wanted to hear from John Bolton. Uh, Susan Collins suggested that she was inclined to hear from him. The separate question is is whether you negotiate getting that testimony on the front end before the trial even begins. And so far, no Republicans are are saying that. They're sticking with Mitch McConnell on this question of, you know, start the trial, have the uh, House present its case have the president present his defense, and then at that point decide whether you want to hear from Bolton and other witnesses.
0: I'm also curious about how all of this may or may not be affected by what's going on with Iran. The fact that you have the killing of Soleimani, the fact that you have these threats of of retribution from Iran and that in theory – President Trump is looking like something more like a wartime president. Does that complicate things or, or change the timeline that, that members of Congress want to see for this to happen?
2: It's a great question, and it's a question without a really easy answer it's definitely removed impeachment from having, you know, center stage all to itself here on Capitol Hill. This is now sort of a touring circus, so to speak, where, you know, very senior officials on the Hill tomorrow briefing members of Congress. Um, This is all going to be playing out at the same time as they're deciding how to move forward with impeachment.
0: So with all that in mind, I want to ask the question of, of when do you think we should expect an impeachment trial to start? And I feel like the answer to that question for you will be, well, we have no idea. <laughs> but but I'm also wondering, like, what you're watching out for in coming days that will give us a better clue as to whether this is going to be imminent or whether this is going to take a while before we actually get an impeachment trial started.
2: I think that we're actually going to know within a couple days – what what the plan is. And, you know, it's almost entirely in Speaker Pelosi's hands. The House comes back into session this afternoon. Speaker Pelosi will be starting to make public statements. She's going to be asked about this at every opportunity. She's going to have to make clear at some point what her intentions are and what she wants to hear from the Senate before moving forward with this. I think as it becomes clear today and tomorrow That Republican senators are are sticking with Mitch McConnell on the Clinton impeachment precedent plan. You know, the time will come to to send the articles. That's all going to play out the next few days, but our sort of educated guess is that we're going to know probably by Thursday uh, how this is all going to get resolved.
0: Mike DeBonis is a congressional reporter
2: for The Post.
3: pretty clear that the US troop presence is becoming unsustainable in Iraq. On Sunday, the Iraqi parliament voted to expel the U.S. troops. It wasn't an incredibly convincing vote. Most Sunni and Kurdish MPs stayed away. All of the MPs in the chamber at the time were Shia. So there isn't a unified position in the country, but it was a parliamentary majority. This is Liz Sly. I'm
0: the Beirut Bureau Chief of the Washington
3: Post.
0: That vote in the Iraqi parliament was in response to the drone strike that killed Major General Qasem Soleimani and several other people, including an Iraqi military commander. And that attack happened on Iraqi soil, right outside the country's biggest airport.
3: The Iraqis were absolutely furious. And if you remember, this, this came just a few days after members of an Iraqi militia were killed in an airstrike inside Iraq, which had already triggered absolute outrage in Iraq. And we'd seen the U.S. embassy get stormed and people trying to break in, people burning the reception gates. And this assassination of somebody who was one of Iraq's closest allies, really tipped the Iraqis over the edge. They were absolutely livid. And what did the prime minister say about this? The prime minister called it an outrage. He said it was um, a violation of Iraqi sovereignty, a violation of all the rules under which U.S. troops are operating in Iraq, because they're only there, of course, to fight the Islamic State. They're not supposed to be taking their own quarrels into Iraq.
0: So that's true, then. This is actually a violation of how the U.S. and Iraq are supposed to be interacting, that in situations like this, the U.S. was supposed to give Iraq advance notice that they were going to try to do something like this.
3: Yes. And it's quite clear as well that Iraq would not have allowed them to do this because they have very close relations with Qasem Soleimani. He's He's sort of the chief enforcer of Iran's will in Iraq, and he funds all the militias. He holds enormous influence in the country. There's no way they would have given permission for this. So then how do they intend to respond to this? I mean, the big response was the vote in the Iraqi parliament on Sunday. Now, this was not a binding law. It wasn't a binding resolution. But when you think about it, the U.S. went to Iraq originally in 2003, to install democracy. They pretty much drafted the constitution that created this parliament and a majority in that parliament has now said they don't want the U.S. troops there. It's very difficult for them to justify staying under these circumstances.
0: And so what would a withdrawal look like or what would that process look like now that they've voted in parliament? Are they taking next steps to actually come up with a formal process of essentially kicking out U.S. troops?
3: Well, this is where it gets very interesting because a letter was leaked by the prime minister's office yesterday that the prime minister had received yesterday from um, the U.S. military. And it basically said it basically informed the Iraqi military to be aware that extra U.S. troop movements were going to be taking place as the U.S. prepared to pull out troops from Iraq in accordance with the sovereign wishes of the country and the decision in the Iraqi Parliament. Now, it looked very much as this, as if this letter was giving notice that the U.S. was intending to withdraw from Iraq. Hmm. The reaction in Washington was like, no, we haven't made any such decision. The letter was a mistake. It was only a draft. Um, it doesn't mean anything. But it really does look like the U.S. is actually starting to lay the groundwork already for the process of withdrawing those troops. We know there have been some movements at Baghdad Airport troops moving from some places to other places, it's beginning to look as if they're putting the steps in place at least to draw down the presence, if not to bring about a complete withdrawal. Now, of course, a complete withdrawal would take probably weeks or months because there's a lot of troops, there's a lot of equipment, they weren't expecting this. But yeah, I think there's a sense in Iraq at the moment that the beginning of the end has come.
0: Hmm. Well, it's also interesting because it it feels like Soleimani's killing kind of laid bare some existing tensions over how the U.S. thinks about and respects the sovereignty of Iraq. And I'm wondering if there are other ways that that has become apparent over the last couple months or last couple years of the U.S. maybe not treating Iraq the way that a quote-unquote equal partner should be treated.
3: Yes, I think it's fair to say that there's been a a real breakdown um, in in, in the state of the US-Iraqi relationship in recent years. A relationship that really became certainly very close during the last years of the Bush administration was abandoned to a certain extent by the Obama administration, but not so much. It's really been neglected by Trump. He didn't try and meet Iraqi leaders when he went to see the troops at al-Assad Air Base, for example. He just went in and saw the troops as if his relationship with the Iraqis wasn't important. I mean, he all of his tweets, all of his en- constant statements about the U.S. wanting to be finished with endless wars, his constant statements about the U.S. only wanting the oil, All of that has um, left people in the Middle East in general and in Iraq in particular wondering what it is that the U.S. wants out of them. Are they staying or are they going? And meanwhile, in those years, the Iraqis have been realizing that they are going to have to live with the Iranians on their border for the rest of time and that the Americans can't be counted on and might not stay.
0: Hmm. So is this a moment where the Iraqis are basically saying we should... Be thinking about prioritizing our relationship with Iran more than any of what remains of our relationship with the United States?
3: I think the Iraqis have come to see that the presence of U.S. troops on their soil, far from being a stabilizing factor that helps them to balance their relationship with Iran, actually could be a destabilizing factor because it could bring an Iran-U.S. war to their territory.
0: But but what's ironic about the situation is that at least ostensibly, one of the things that led to the U.S.'s decision to um, to kill Soleimani was because he was exerting all this influence in Iraq. But if this killing ends up with the U.S. withdrawing from Iraq or being kicked out of Iraq, doesn't that give Iran basically exactly what it wanted in the first place? Is is an opportunity for Iran to increase their influence in, in Iraq? Well, absolutely.
3: And the whole point of these rocket attacks on the U.S. bases, which Soleimani was organizing, was to convince the Americans to get out of Iraq. They were hoping that President Trump wouldn't have the appetite for a war with Iran, wouldn't fight back, and rather than suffer U.S. casualties in an election year, that he would just pull out the troops. And this was Soleimani's mission, if you like, now that he has died his his life's goal
0: is going to be accomplished. I'm curious how iraqis feel about this like is there widespread support for the idea of strengthening ties to iran and and getting rid of u.s influence or is it more complicated than that
3: well it's not exactly a zero sum game like that it's not it is much more complicated i believe most iraqis do not want their country to be a vassal state of iran i believe most of them resent the um extensive influence iran has gained in iraq And we've seen that come out in the popular protests recently where they have denounced Iran and they have denounced Soleimani. But not wanting Iran in your country doesn't mean they want America
0: instead. It's not an either or situation. And it seems like that has been one of the historical challenges for Iraq is the fact that it is such a kind of convenient proxy for so many other countries and for such a long time. They're kind of at the mercy of of more powerful allies who try to use Iraq as a form of exerting influence. And so I wonder if there will be a time anytime soon where they can— find a way to, to be more independent or to kind of get rid of that influence and be able to stand on their own. We're looking
3: at a really long time. The Iraq is really a really sort of broken country at the moment. The economy is a mess. And they do have real income, but there's widespread poverty. There's no industry or economic opportunity outside the oil industry. The society is deeply divided. The institutions are broken. The military is broken. Iraq was a a, a regional power under Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein was, of course, toppled and overturned. It's one of the Iranian goals is to make sure Iraq doesn't become powerful again, because it doesn't want a powerful Arab country on its border.
0: Liz Sly is the Beirut bureau chief for The Washington Post. And now one more thing about new questions from teenagers about the Selective Service.
1: After President Trump announced that a high-ranking Iranian general had been killed in a U.S. airstrike, the website for the Selective Service system suddenly started to get a lot of traffic because people were starting to worry about the draft. I'm Kayla Epstein. I'm a general assignment reporter for The Washington Post. So tensions with Iran have been high for quite some time, and the U.S. has also been embroiled in the Middle East for a long time. And so when it was announced that a general named Qasem Soleimani had been killed in an airstrike, I think a lot of people's minds went to the worst-case scenario for what that would mean. They started worrying that the U.S. might be drawn into another conflict, and as can happen on the internet, people started to get a little hyperbolic about it.
0: I got drafted by, like, the NBA.
1: The U.S. military, the U.S. military. So it's that kind of job. Is there a war? There were memes about the impending start of World War III. People started making jokes and memes about getting drafted into that hypothetical conflict.
4: Hello, everyone,
1: and here's a list of all the people that deserve to be drafted before I do. Anybody that has a peanut allergy. People who dip their pizza in a ranch. And this happened on TikTok, on Instagram. But at the same time, we saw spikes in Google trends for things like conscription, the draft, the selective service. So people actually did have some questions about what could happen if we got involved in another conflict. Right now, the entire military is a volunteer force, and so people have to actively sign up to join. Even if you opted into something called the Selective Service, if you are a man, citizen or not, documented or not, residing in the United States and you're between the ages of 18 and 25, that doesn't mean you're going to get drafted. It does not enlist you in the military. All it does is put you in a database of people that could theoretically be called upon in the event that a draft is required. But that's very unlikely. It would take legislation by Congress and the president signing it to reinstate the draft. We haven't had a draft since 1973, even after conflicts like the Iraq and Afghanistan war. So even though World War III is trending and Google searches for the draft are spiking, there really isn't a chance that you are going to be drafted anytime soon.
0: Kayla Epstein writes for The National Desk. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Greetings to a listener named John, who recently sent me a DM on Twitter. Somewhat trivial question, John asked, is there a connection between your program's theme music and Shape of You by Ed Sheeran? We weren't entirely sure, so we asked composer and producer Ted Muldoon, who wrote our theme music, if he considered Sheeran an influence. (laughs) No. No, no, no. Well, John, there you have it. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
4: Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, a journalist with The Washington Post and the creator of Presidential, a 44-episode podcast journey through American presidential history. If one of your resolutions this year is to become a more engaged citizen, to brush up on your understanding of the nation's politics, then I've got a suggestion. Take the Presidential Challenge in 2020. Each of the 44 podcast episodes of Presidential tells the story of how a former president climbed his way to the White House what he did there, and what's different about the country today because of his time in office. If you start now and you listen to one episode on a different U.S. president per week, you'll make it through the entire history of the presidency by Election Day. The episodes feature interviews with famous presidential biographers.
1: When I was writing my biography of Clinton, I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad?
4: and with award-winning journalists. The day he resigned, he called all of his aides and friends and family to the West Wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter. You can find all 44 episodes of The Presidential Podcast at WashingtonPost.com presidential or on any of your other favorite podcast platforms.